Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meet Social and Emotional Learning podcast, episode number 77, with Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry, who are both professors at San Diego State University in educational leadership, where they focus on policies and practices in literacy and school leadership. For those who are new here, my name is Andrea Samadhi. I'm a former educator who created this podcast to bring the most current neuroscience and educational research matched with social and emotional skills with interviews from experts who've risen to the top of their field with specific strategies or ideas that you can implement immediately to take your results to the next level. My vision is to bring the experts to you so whether you're a student in the classroom or a teacher working online, you can take these ideas and implement them immediately. Welcome, Doug and Nancy. It's wonderful to meet you after enjoying your books this past weekend. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, we're excited for this conversation. Absolutely. This is going to be good because there's some, some big names attached here and I just want to give a little bit more background about you both so people can learn a little bit more about where you've started. Doug and Nancy are also both teacher leaders at Health Sciences High and Middle College, and it's a, an award-winning open enrollment public school in City Heights neighborhood of San Diego that they co-founded in 2007. So for over two decades, they've dedicated their work to the knowledge and skills teachers and school leaders need to help students attain their goals. Their shared interests include instructional design, curriculum development, and professional learning. Doug and Nancy have co-authored numerous articles and books on literacy and leadership that I've included all in the show notes, so you can just click and go straight to the book on their website. Some of the books include This is Balanced Literacy, The Teacher Clarity Playbook, PLC Plus, All Learning is Social and Emotional, The Teacher Credibility and Collective Efficacy Playbook, and the most recent book, The Distance Learning Playbook with co-author John Hattie. Now, I could not start this podcast without acknowledging John Hattie's visible learning research and the fact that he's the co-author of your distance learning playbook. So I just want to start there. Uh, when I was reading your playbook this weekend, I 100% agree with this write-up I saw. You've got a really nice little breakout uh, quote, and it says the pandemic teaching of mid-2020 was not distance learning, but rather crisis teaching. But starting now, teachers have the opportunity to prepare for distance learning with purpose and intent. So I'd love to learn where this idea of the distance learning playbook came about and why it was so important for you to include the well-known John Hattie as your co-author. Well, Nancy and I have been working with John for many years. We have a number of books out with him and a number of conferences and friendships. And it just was logical that we're going to be in this together for a while as a community in, in, in thinking through distance learning. So why not, um, why not partner with him and mobilize the distance learning knowledge we have, he has with the visible learning database. We, I want to start with honoring the 74 teachers from Australia, Hawaii, Alaska, California, and Texas who allowed us inside their 
early attempts at distance learning when the pandemic closed schools in March and allowed us to watch, coach, plan, engage. That's how we got all of this stuff. So here's this big database of what works in education, what works best to accelerate learning. And we're watching 74 people who said, sure, come on, watch, talk to me afterwards, think about it with me. That's how this book came about. Let's mobilize this database in a global crisis, and then let's watch some folks actually implement. What we also wanted to do too, is to really leverage that incredible database to be able to return to what it is that we know is good teaching. And I know I've remarked to Doug and others many times, I have felt in the last six months, many times, like I'm a first year teacher, even though I've been in education for 28 years. And there, uh, what I needed to do was to uh, refocus attention on what it is that I, that we collectively as a field know about teaching and learning. And that uh, was really the, the um, conceptual framework that we wanted to utilize. Let's use those influences and figure out how it is that we can marshal those in a distance learning environment. And like the rest of the world, I was sitting there with my girls home and I have a teaching background and I came from Pearson education where I knew online platforms and we still struggled. So it's a timely book. I think it's a brilliant way of uh, taking what was a disaster and turning it around with information to bring direction for educators. I think this is the right path. Well, I, and I appreciate that insight too because it is remarkable what the field was able to do globally in the spring to be able to rapidly pivot to a virtual environment. But we all know too that it was an emergency under which we did those. Going forward, moving into the fall, we have that opportunity to be able to do that careful planning like we have always done for our classes to really be able to construct a set of coherent experiences for students and along the way to lift some of that burden from families. This brings me to my second question because this is exactly what I spoke about with my last episode, number 76. I had expert Michael Horn on and he was talking about the importance of embracing technology and the importance of this with our future and you wrote an article that I saw uh, in smartbrief.com and it was four steps for powerful distance learning experiences and it ties right into this topic. And so this morning, I actually had my two girls ages 10 and eight and they went back to school uh, online today for the first time, it was meet the teacher. And here I am all ready for your interview and I logged in my uh, eight-year-old into the 10-year-old's class because yeah. I was thinking right. So can you just go through the four steps as many schools and families are like me in the beginning stages and things that we can do to think and plan ahead before they go back to in-person learning eventually? Right. We cannot wait to go back to in-person learning, let's be clear. I want those kids back so much. But we've also learned some things that I hope we bring back with us 
whenever we go back physically. There should be some changes in the education system about what we've learned. So a couple of the things we've been talking about is we have to be very careful of remediating. So there's this, this thing, talk going on about nobody learned anything from March to June. They're all so far behind. How many weeks are we gonna do last year's content versus this year's content? And I just worry that it's the wrong conversation. The kids are where they are. One of the superpowers teachers have is knowing where kids are and accelerating them. If we start down this conversation of deficit too much, we start to have deficit mindsets about kids. And you know, because of the work you do in neurosciences and SEL, if you start believing in the deficit orientation for kids, expectations lower, assignments start to lower, we get into this, oh, you poor thing, that's not gonna be healthy. Kids are where they are, we're gonna teach them what they need to know right now. That's one of the coolest things we've learned from other crises that cause school closures is when the Christchurch earthquakes happened or Katrina or the bushfires in Australia. The teachers focus on what the kids need to learn right now and they cut out all the other stuff. And it turns out very little learning loss from major closures of school, very little learning loss. So let's not obsess on what we didn't deliver in spring. Let's start now. Let's figure out where the kids are and let's teach them where they are. Second, Nancy might want to talk about relationships and third, predictability. Those are really important concepts as we move forward. How do we establish relationships and how do we make the experience? So your child, those two kids, their experience predictable. And Andrea, I love being able to talk with this audience in particular because it comes as no surprise to be able to say that we need to be investing in the relationships that we have with students. And in a distance environment, it, it causes us to have to think about how we can create those relationships when we're not physically present with students. We know that no significant learning happens outside of a significant relationship. And especially as we're all going back to school, that needs to be job one, as it is every year, I would point out, for every effective teacher, getting to know your students, getting to know what their interests are, increasing those opportunities to be able to have those touch points of uh, using students' names and uh, asking them questions uh, about their lives, sharing our uh, experiences as well to be able to create that initial relationship and that initial closeness critical in a distance learning environment. One of the things that we didn't get a chance to really be able to do well or to do effectively when we were engaged in crisis teaching back in the spring was to have a solid plan going forward about how it is that we are creating those touch points even when children and their families are not in our presence. Going forward, using things like those two-way communication systems remind being an example of that so that we can stay present in the lives of our students and in the lives of families. We don't want families to feel as if we have forgotten about them or that we've left them on their own. So creating those communication opportunities 
both with students and with families, absolutely critical. And wasn't relationships between student teacher one of John Hattie's findings? I interviewed Greg Wolcott in episode seven, and he wrote a book called Significant 72 that talks about the importance of student teacher relationships. Yeah. And that's where I first really got to dive deep into John Hattie. Yeah. Would 72 be the effects on? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little lower with some new research. Um, and I think when you start combining some of it, it's a little lower than that today. Uh, and the cool thing about John Hattie is every time a new meta-analysis comes out, he updates the numbers. So it is a living, breathing database that every time a meta-analysis comes out, he goes in and says, okay, and he's looking to be wrong. He wants to see, is the story there still, or is it, is it did I get it right? And student-teacher relationships are powerful. The effect size is a little lower than that now. As part of that, though, is teacher credibility. Do I think I can learn from you? Do I trust you? Do I see you as competent? Do I see you as passionate, dynamic, and close to me? So if we can maintain our credibility, the effect size is way higher because it includes relationship and more. If we can maintain our credibility from a distance, the trusting relationships we have with students, they think they can learn from us. Like, I know that if I show up in this Zoom meeting, I'm going to learn something from you that you are dynamic and passionate and that you are, I have a closeness to you. They're gonna learn a lot. One of the things we worry about is as we all learn all these new tools, we change them up a lot and we start to compromise the learner's uh, belief in our ability to teach. Like here are my teachers changing again, here are my teachers changing again, here are my teacher. So we need to pick some tools and kind of stick with them. And then every once in a while I'll say, Here's a new tool. That third point is around making it predictable for students. They should not, you know, today is the first day for your kids, but it should become routine and habit how to log in. It should become routine and habit. This is how I submit my work. That our class has some common ways of interacting. If we use breakout rooms, here are the things that happen when we're in breakout rooms. So we, we need some predictability. Now the spring crisis, it was grab anything you can and it became less predictable for kids and families were so frustrated they said i'm not sure when my kids are supposed to log in i'm not supposed to, i'm not sure where they're supposed to turn it in i don't even know how to get them to submit the work because now you all of a sudden now we're in this google thing and last week we were in this thing and now we're in that thing you can't do that we have to make it predictable right and the last which directly connects to you again is right now when we return to school, we need to address the social emotional learning of the students and the current social emotional state of the adults. That this is now, you know, social emotional learning has kind of been on the periphery in many school systems. You know, it might be in the hidden curriculum or the extracurriculum, you know, half an hour of after school program on SEL. I think the world is realizing how much we really need to take care of the social emotional lives of people inside school. Well, in your playbook, you put take care of yourself as module one. And I love to see that because it's so important for educators to not have their, their day running in distress because then their cortisol rises and then that makes the students cortisol rise. And then 
the behaviors go crazy. Even I can imagine it being distance learning. I don't, I don't even know how that's going to look. But so why did you put it first? Did you see how important it was? Absolutely. And, you know, perhaps it is uh, part of the nature of this profession. We are a service profession and educators see themselves very much as being in service to their students and to their families. And it can be easy to sort of um, uh, sacrifice some of the things that are important to you in order to be of service to something else. But here's what we know. You can't fill someone else's cup if your cup is empty. You've got to be able to take care of what it is that you need and understand that it is not a selfish act to be able to say, I need to bracket my day. Many of us in a distance learning environment, for example, are working from home. We're not working from that physical space in many cases that cues us to be able to say, I'm at work right now. And then I walk to the parking lot and I drive home and there's a shift in the environmental cues and I understand that I'm at home. In many cases for educators right now, those cues are gone. So we have to create our own cues to be able to say, this is the bracket of my day. This is when I start my work. And importantly, this is when I end my work. Having some of those rituals that help to signal when your workday begins and when your workday ends, very healthy. And Nancy, let me add to that. You know, the, the reality is the vast majority of us as teachers did not sign up to work at home. We signed up to get in our cars or get in our buses and be around other human beings. We're highly social in general. So when we were suddenly forced to work at home, we started applying all, we, we, we didn't have morning routines anymore. We didn't have evening routines, as you said. We sometimes forgot our exercise or health routines because this is not how we signed up. Some people work at home and they have for years in their professional life and they've learned how to work at home. We were suddenly thrust into working at home. So, and then some people were so worried about kids and so um, stressed about their children's learning, the students that are, they're responsible for, that they're at 10 o'clock at night trying to contact a kid, six o'clock in the morning, and you can't sustain that for a long time. You gotta take care of yourself. Definitely, I remember even when I started working from home, um, just the, the fact that it never shuts off. So, you know, your email is on your phone and you get the notification. I was a publishing rep and I was known for getting back to my customers within 10 minutes and getting them what they needed. And I feel like that's just never gone away. It's just yeah. ingrained in me that you're always working and you always answer back when somebody needs something, bam, get it to them right away. It's just how I was taught. And then what happens is, is suddenly you realize it's eight, nine o'clock at night and you don't have a life or you can start to map it out. What are you, what's your morning going to look like? And I love to see those charts in there. It's very helpful. And, and we, we can't take for granted that we do this because we're, we're not going to do it naturally. We're going to sit there and work and then suddenly it's seven, eight and nine at night and you're still sitting there. So I, I love that you've put this in here. I'll add a quick comment. I want to flip the conversation from 
work-life balance to life-work balance. Why does work get to go first? Yeah. Exactly. And we wanted to put that module first because we, we are concerned that too often self-care ends up being something that you do if you have time after yes. you've done everything else. And yep. so we really wanted to, as Doug said, kind of flip the script on that and say, no, no, you, the, the place that you start is by making yourself as emotionally and physically strong as you can because that makes you a more effective educator. Right, and then transferring that back. So one day schools will reopen and I would love to see the fact that these skills go back and do things differently because as a teacher, I remember not even having time to go to the bathroom, let alone mm -hmm. say, I need a five minute walk outside. So that would be a great transition to, to make change for the future, definitely. Right. Well, I know you're both big proponents of teacher clarity and how that clarity has the potential to accelerate student learning. Um, and there's three questions that contribute to teacher clarity. Can you briefly cover what those are and how they apply to distance learning? So those three questions in particular are, and, and they're present in the mind of any learner, no matter what the age of that learner, including adults. Learners always wanna know these things what am I learning today? Why am I learning this? And how will I know I've been successful at doing it? And that first question, what am I learning today, is addressed by using learning intentions in particular. That second question, why am I learning this? That's the relevance piece. How do we build relevance for the learner so that they see the connections to their worlds inside and outside of school. And that third one, how will I know that I'm successful? That's where success criteria come into play. And what effective teachers are able to do is to accelerate the learning because they take those questions head on and they address what those questions are. And students become accustomed to being able to have those questions addressed and to ask those questions of themselves. And when we talk about those questions, some people get a little worried, worried about this. We never said they had to be the start of a lesson. <laughs> they have to be somewhere in the lesson. So if we're doing more about problem-based learning or discovery for something that we were gonna figure it out, we don't have to say what we're learning up front. But at some point, students should know, did I, was I successful? Did I actually learn this? And why? Why is it? Why do I need to know this? So those questions become drivers, and also the planning that teachers do. So if I have a synchronous session and I have an asynchronous session, what? How am I going to combine them to ensure students know what they're learning, why, and how? That makes complete sense, especially when we're all blindly logging in, not having any idea what we're doing. So that okay. that helps a lot. Lastly, and tying back to social emotional learning, in your playbook, you discuss the socio-emotional links to feedback. Can you talk a bit about the importance of classroom climate, whether it's physical or virtual and where errors are celebrated and expected and how that plays into feedback? Sure. So feedback from a teacher is gonna be mediated by the relationship that the student has with the teacher. If I feel, if, if we have a trusting relationship, I think you care about me and you have my best interest at your heart. 
I'm going to accept the feedback in a very different way than if I think you're always after to get me. You don't like me anyway. It's just that we forget that the relationship mediates whether or not feedback can be accepted. And I think that goes back to your earlier comment about the power of the student-teacher relationships. To paraphrase the late Rita Pearson, young people don't learn from old people they don't like. If you don't like someone, it's really hard to learn from them. So that's, that's playing out in the feedback. I think my goal is to teach students to seek out feedback, not wait passively for it. To learn how to say, hey, you know, teacher, could you help me, could you give me some feedback on this? Because I'm not sure my transitions are strong yet. Do you think, what do you think about it? That is the ideal. Now we have to teach students to do that. And we have to teach them very intentionally and specifically how to seek feedback. And teachers have to narrow their feedback to things that students can actually do. In the business world, there's this model of feedback called great. And I've never seen anything applied to schools with the great feedback model. But it stands for this. Is the feedback growth oriented? I mean, was the intent of this feedback to help you grow? Now you know not all feedback is. Second, is the feedback real? And unfortunately, sometimes there are interactions we have which are fake and kids know it. The false praise, and they see right through it. Third, is it empathetic? Do we actually think about the other person as we give them feedback? Do we even thank them for listening to our feedback? Do we ask them if the feedback was useful? So empathetic feedback. Um, <clears throat> the next one, ask for, that students request it, which we talked about a little bit ago, and then tea timely. Feedback expires. It has a shelf life. And so when you think about it, when you, when you have a decision in your mind, is this growth oriented? Am I being honest, real? Am I being empathetic in this? Did the student ask me for it? And is it timely? And I think when you start thinking about all the changes we should make, including when we come back to make empathetic and great feedback for students, that could be really powerful. And related to that is this idea of creating that learning climate that says it's okay to make a mistake. And in fact, that's a part of the learning process. Uh, what Doug and I often start the year with is by informing our students that our job is to provoke errors in them. And then we talk about why it is that errors are so important in the learning process. You don't learn from things that you already know how to do. There is no such thing as error-free learning. It's those uh, errors along the way that really help. We also know lots of teachers who do things like from the very beginning of the year, they'll talk about their failure resume. Here are the things that I have tried and I haven't been good at because sometimes uh, children and adolescents think that the adult that's in the front of the room or in front of the screen uh, has had this error-free smooth life and they already know all of these things. So sharing what those challenges are is really important. Uh, and we're not talking about unburdening ourselves uh, on children, but rather to be able to be frank with them and say, here are things that I'm learning about right now. Here we are for so many of us in distance learning. And I know that I want to talk with my students about the things that I am finding challenging, the things that I'm struggling, and what it is 
that I'm doing to be able to address those challenges. That helps to create that climate that says, oh yeah, this is what we're supposed to do. And this is a place where I can be emotionally safe, psychologically safe, because I know it's part of the learning process. That's so true. Whenever I've been in front of students and the last group I was in front of was a high school group. And I did just that. I talked about where I went, where I failed in life and they were just eating it up. They thought, Oh, this lady that's coming in that wrote the books that has been doing our programs with our schools, everything's great for her. And I said, no, this year it didn't go so great. And here's what happened. And they were all just blown away. And then they opened up way deeper to me. And I heard from students that raising their hand that were quiet in the past because it just really it brought in some trust that, you know, that I opened up to them and they opened up back. It's just how it works. Where are you? Can, can you think about just to tie all this in together uh, to close everything out? Some final thoughts on all of this for us. I'll go first so that Nancy can have the final word. We didn't forget how to teach. We, we know how to teach. Our kids need us. We're still at school. We will get through this. Yes, you have to learn some new techniques and tools. Yes, there's some minor differences in instructional frameworks and things like that. But being overly stressed and worrying that I don't know what Seesaw is or I don't know how to use TikTok in my class is not helping us. We know how to teach, the kids need us, they will learn from us. Let's get to the business of teaching and let's let the scientists and doctors solve this problem so we can all go back to school in a physical way. I'll offer as a final thought from my perspective too, this time has been a, uh, a stark reminder of how much we need one another. Now more than ever, the collaboration that we have among adults at the school is critical. We cannot allow any of our colleagues to feel as though they're all alone in the process. And more than ever, we're appreciative of how much we need to collaborate with families. They truly are our partners in learning. And in strengthening those partnerships, get out of the way. Those kids are gonna learn and it's gonna be an amazing year for them. I love it. It was such a refreshing conversation. I wanna thank you both so much for taking the time to share your playbook and your powerful vision for education with distance learning. If someone wants to learn more about you, is it your website, fisherandfry.com? Is that the best place? That is the best way. Got it. All your books are listed there. And they can also find you on Twitter. Nancy is at Nancy Fry, F-R-E-Y. And Doug is at D Fisher, S-D-S-U. So I'll put all this in the show notes. And also just a note, Corin Press is offering a 30% discount plus free shipping through the end of August on all the books. So I put that link in there as well in the show notes. I want to thank you so much for coming on today. It was awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you because we, Nancy and I both have listened to your podcast. 
I love the connections you make between these two bodies of work, this idea of neurosciences and social emotional learning and how they can come together. So really appreciate your efforts and thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Andrea. And, and the service that you're doing to the field is amazing. Thank you so much. I couldn't do it without the authors. So thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.